are in week seven of our series called Belief in the Age of Skepticism, and um, if you've been following along in this series, I've tried to remind us of this on the front end of our time each week that this series has really just one goal. I want to communicate the truth of Christianity in a way that builds your faith, wherever you're coming from, whatever that means. You know, if you're standing on the outside of Christianity figuring out, could I really believe this? Is this really true? Is this worth devoting my life to? Uh, or if you've been in the faith for years, you know, I don't, I don't think, you know, the, uh, the process of our faith growing and deepening and becoming more robust and life-changing is one that should, should end until we ourselves end. And so that's what this series is about. And we've been going each week through um, kind of basic core foundational beliefs of, uh, of Christianity. And um, there has been, I mentioned this on, on, a, on a, the first couple of weeks, that we haven't just been kind of pulling things out of thin air, uh, a little bit more uh, method to the madness with this one. What we've been doing is, albeit loosely, following the outline of something that's known as the Apostles' Creed, which is the oldest summary of biblical doctrine that we have. <clears throat> and if you read through the Apostles' Creed, you will eventually get to the phrase, I believe in the Holy Spirit, or, or actually in the oldest um, versions of it, I believe in the Holy Ghost, and so that's what we're going to talk about today, which I, I, I realized as I was putting this together, this is the first time I have ever preached exclusively on the Holy Spirit. So how's that sound? Well, we're doing it anyway, all right? I only got the, only got the one teaching prepared. <laughs> Shifting gears, let's, no, I'm just kidding. I'm in John chapter 14, we'll be in verses 15 through 26. <clears throat> Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me because I live you will live too. In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you are in me, and I'm in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. <clears throat> this is God's word. So when it comes to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I think it's pretty much unanimous that the Holy Spirit is the most mysterious of the three. And if you're looking uh, for a passage that can give you a, a, a great foundational understanding of the Holy Spirit, um, you know, look no further. This is a great place. And actually, <clears throat> John chapters 14 through 17 is collectively, it, it's, it's gone on to be known as Jesus' upper room discourse, which is basically... Uh, the final things that Jesus said to his disciples the night before he knew he was going to die. And, um, you know, if you, if you just consider how much 
how much emphasis Jesus gave to the Holy Spirit uh, in his upper room discourse, that alone should be incredibly convicting and telling about how important the Holy Spirit is for our lives. Because if you think about it this way, if you knew you were going to die in less than 24 hours and you're surrounded by people that you love, that you've invested your life in, that's when you tell them what you consider to be the most important things that they need to hear to go and live the life that you want to see them live. And it's here that Jesus, in a really concentrated way, decides to talk about the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do today is is look at what Jesus says here in this passage, and I just want to ask three questions that I think all need to be asked if you want to get just a foundational understanding of the Holy Spirit. The questions are, first off, who is the Holy Spirit? you got to start there. Secondly, what does the Holy Spirit do? But it's actually the third question that I found the most um, intriguing when I was putting this together, and maybe you will as well. So the third question we're going to ask and answer today is how can you receive and receive more uh, and experience more of the Holy Spirit in your life? You can't skip to that. you got to talk about who the Spirit is, and what the Spirit does. But I want to end, uh, just getting as practical as I know to, answering the question, how can you experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in in your life? So my hope is that this is going to be just a really uh, helpful time together. So first and foremost, let's ask the question, who... um, who is the Spirit? And Jesus gives us three clues here. The first is found in verse 17, where Jesus says, the world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. So you notice there that uh, Jesus, and, and this is not just true of Jesus' words, this is basically all the New Testament, the Spirit is referred to as a person. Uh, the Spirit is not a, um, he's not an impersonal force, you know, that you just happen to magically um, tap into, you know, this isn't Star Wars, he's, he's not karma, uh, he's not electricity, he's not other things that are a force, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's not an it, he's a him, a person, is the first thing you, you, you need to grasp here. Uh, secondly, building off of that in verse 16, Jesus said, I'll ask the Father uh, and he will give you another counselor. We're going to talk uh, later on about, you know, this word counselor. But for now, I just want to look at this word, another, because in the Greek, there's two words that can be translated into the English word, another. One of the words means another that is nothing like the one that came before, but the other Greek word for another means another that is exactly like the one that came before. Jesus uses the second Greek word here. And so when Jesus says that that God the Father is going to send you another counselor, what this means is that Jesus, because he explicitly claimed to be God over and over and over, when he says the Spirit is another counselor, what he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is not only a person, but he's a person who is equally, infinitely divine alongside God the Father and Jesus the Son. So he's a person, he's a divine person, but the third thing is probably the hardest for us to to grasp, and I don't anticipate grasping it by the end of this. I don't anticipate grasping it by the end of my life, actually. In verse 18, Jesus says... I think this is incredibly encouraging. You can imagine how the disciples heard this. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. So the the main thing of the entire upper room discourse, if you read it, and again, we're talking hours before Jesus is betrayed, um, you know, wrongly tried, the midnight trial, kind of kangaroo court, and then sentenced to death and and publicly murdered in the most humiliating way possible. Um, The whole theme of this discourse is Jesus is trying to get his disciples ready for what he was about to do. 
And so he's, he's telling them, I'm leaving you. And they, they don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus really came to do, let alone how Jesus came to do it. But he's saying, I'm leaving. But he goes on to say here and later on that his, his and the Father's presence, despite the fact that he's leaving, Jesus says, my and my Father's presence will remain with you in a way that Jesus says is actually better than if he stayed. Uh, and, and so that, of course, raises the question, how, how is that possible? I mean, how can it... How can both things be true that on the one hand, Jesus is leaving, and yet Jesus is not leaving us? And the answer to that seemingly unsolvable question is the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying here is that when the Holy Spirit enters your life, you have the presence of God the Father and Jesus the Son residing in you. And so on one hand, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. On the other hand, He's saying, but the Holy Spirit's coming, and when he arrives, it'll be just as though you have both me and the Father. So if you think about this idea for any length of time, the question that you're eventually going to have to answer is, okay, so is the Holy Spirit one with God the Father and Jesus the Son, or is the Holy Spirit distinct from God the Father and Jesus the Son? And the answer, as is so often the case with God, is yes. All right, so, so here's, here's, the, here's the, the Christian understanding of God according to the Bible. And this is what God says about himself, so I think this is important to grasp. Um, Christianity teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just hang on, are not three gods. Uh, they're one. Deuteronomy 6, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. However, in saying that, uh, they're also distinct persons of the same God. What that means is that it's not as though there's one God that occasionally manifests as the Father, and sometimes He appears as the Son, but then sometimes the, 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 the Holy Spirit. That's actually modalism, and it's uh, heresy, so you don't want to go down that road. So, so the, the, the Christian understanding of God is it's, it's not that it's one God and one person, but neither is it three gods and three persons. It's one God and three persons. And if that sounds difficult to grasp... I would say, welcome to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Nice to have you aboard. Uh, so instead of trying to resolve that mystery, and, and there really is no analogy that gets that across, but without spending any more time there, what I want to do is just focus on the first thing that I walked us through that Jesus says, which is this concept that the Holy Spirit is a person. That's a, it's a, it's really important to hang on to because when you read through the New Testament, you will get hit in the face with the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'll kind of return to this a little bit later on, but if you just look at how many times the Holy Spirit appears in the New Testament epistles, it's crystal clear that none of the first followers of Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, John, none of them thought it was even worth talking about Christianity without talking about the Holy Spirit because you can't live this life without the Holy Spirit. In fact, the New Testament actually commands you, if you have any interest in living the Christian life, the, whole, the, the, uh, the, the New Testament commands you to be filled with the Spirit of God, which is a really interesting command. And I remember, I think it was the fall of 2018, I was teaching through Ephesians for the first time, and I came to that, that command in Ephesians 5, and I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, to, the, the command, it's just really, it's interesting. Be filled with the Spirit. I remember I was talking to Katie about it, and, and it's, you know, Paul doesn't provide instructions after that, and so I was talking to my wife, Katie, and I said, well, what, do you, you know, what, do you, what does that mean? Like, what are we supposed to do? How do you do that? And, and uh, 
you know, my, my wife very wisely said, that's really not the point. You know, this isn't a how-to guide. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to do now is save you from the mistake that I made back then, because when you and I hear, you know, that we need to be filled with fill-in-the-blank, the first thing, our, the first shift our mind tends to make is a shift in thinking that the Holy Spirit is a substance rather than a person. And so it's almost like, well, well, you know, you only got five gallons of spirit left. You better top off before you run out kind of thing. And then you'll think in terms of, okay, so there, like I did, that there must be techniques for filling up the old spiritual tank. Like you can just pick up the seven habits of highly spirit-filled people and then walk in the spirit the rest of your life as though this can be mastered through techniques. And it's just not the case. It doesn't work like that which makes sense because no relationship with any person works like that. So the, the question is, what does it mean when, when, when the New Testament commands you and I to be filled with the Spirit? What is it actually commanding and what does that actually look like? Um, one of the best answers I've, I've heard to that question was given by a 17th century British Puritan pastor named Thomas Goodwin. I came across this story a couple years ago. True story, Goodwin said he was, he was uh, one day watching a father and son walk down the street, little guy and his, his dad, and at one point the father swept the son up into his arms, and he put his arms around his son, and the son put his arms around his dad, and they both said that they loved each other, and then he put his son back down on the street, and Goodwin asked his congregation the question, he said, was that little boy more of his father's son in his father's arms than he was on the street? And legally, the answer is, no, of course not. He's just as much his son in in, in either setting. But experientially, that moment that they had together made all the difference in the world. Because it was when that little boy was in his father's arms, experiencing his father's brace, that's when he was, you could say, experiencing his sonship. That's when he was experiencing the love that his father had for him in a way that actually carried him. And when the Bible commands you and I to be filled with the Spirit, that's what it's talking about. It's about having an encounter with God and his father's heart for you and the love that he has for you so personally that it's no longer just an abstract idea. It's no longer something that you kind of, you know, study and think about and maybe you find it interesting. It's something that captures you and wraps its arm around you in a way that actually carries you. And you know you're, you're being filled with the Spirit when you're able to have a conversation with your own heart, when you're able to basically speak to your heart instead of listening to your heart, which we all do way too much of, and you're able to say, okay, if, if what this book is telling me is true, this is what being filled with the, with the Spirit sounds like. If what Scripture is telling me is true, that God actually loves me like this, that, that he, he didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him, because that's how much he wanted to bring you home into his family. If God actually loves me like that, and he says he's never going to let me go, and he says that by the end of my life, he's going to cause everything, even the bad things, to somehow ultimately work together for my good. And one day he's going to glorify me and he's going to give me the life that I've always accidentally longed for. And I have this new body and, 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 and there's satisfaction and there's fulfillment and, and all of that. If that is a surefire hope for me, then the question is, what am I worried about? You know, why is it that I, why, why do I approach the obstacles and the difficulties and the, and the questions and the circumstances and the situations of life as though my entire life is made on whether or not this particular thing works out the way that I need it to? Why does it really move me whether or not I land this job or I get into this school or this relationship works out or how much money I make or what other people think of me? 
Why, why am I so concerned about my physical appearance or even my physical health if what this book is telling me is true? Why would I ever let anything in this momentary handful of breaths, this vapor that the Bible calls life, why would I ever allow that to define me? That's what it sounds like when you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And what happens as that happens over the course of your life is your burdens become smaller and lighter the self-consciousness that you carry around begins to dissolve, and the things that control you slowly, surely lose their grip on you, and you move out into life with joy. And so first and foremost, when you ask the question, who is the Spirit? The Spirit is, number one, a person, but secondly, a person who is infinitely divine alongside God the Father who mediates the presence of God the Father and Jesus the Son in your life. Um, and so the, the, the next question that you have to answer, if you want to understand the Holy Spirit, um, we kind of touched on this at the end of point one, but now we're going to get explicit here, is what does the Spirit actually do? And again, you know, I could do a whole series on that, but what I want to do just to be faithful to this particular passage is I want to look at how Jesus answers that question here in two specific ways. And I'll give them to you on the front end. What Jesus says about the Holy Spirit here is that first off, he is a spirit of truth, so he reveals the truth to you. Secondly, he says the Holy Spirit is a counselor who will create change in you. So let's just look at both of those one at a time. First off, um, I want to look at verse 17 and 26. Verse 17, Jesus says the words, he is the spirit of truth. And then down in, in, in 26, he says the counselor, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. So what Jesus is saying here is, is that the Holy Spirit, when he enters your life, he'll do what any good teacher will do. He will help you understand things that you would never be able to learn or grasp on your own. That's a promise not only to the disciples who were with him in the upper room, but to all those who give their life to Jesus. So I think that, that requires explaining. What does that mean? That the Holy Spirit raises your IQ, and when it talks about teaching us all things, what exactly is the scope of that in... Um, I heard a story a couple years ago that I think explains that in a really helpful way. This is a tr true story. Um, there was a, a young man who was preparing to enter ministry full-time, and so he was going through seminary. And in the middle of seminary, he actually got saved, which is far more common than you, you'd, you'd probably think. Uh, and I think it's just a healthy thing for us to realize and remember that it's entirely possible, you know, to get training in the Bible, you know, to be really personally acquainted with the content of the Bible to the point that you can teach the truth of the Bible to other people and never really grasp what it's really saying yourself. That's where this guy was headed. So he's in seminary, and right in the middle of his training, he hears the gospel that his standing before God has been determined by Jesus Christ and requires no effort on his own, only to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and his life was changed in an instant. So he's, you know, he's elated, and he's, he, you know, his heart is flooded with, with, with peace and, and joy and hope and all these kinds of things, and so he was obviously very happy, but this will sound funny, he also got kind of angry, because here he was in seminary getting ready to be a full-time minister, and he finds himself asking the question, why has no one ever told me this before? I'm in seminary, I have these professors and instructors and colleagues and classmates, why has no one actually told me the message of the gospel? And so he's, he's beginning to develop this kind of chip on his shoulder, and then he goes back through his textbooks, and he discovered something that startled him. 
because he started looking back through his textbooks and looking at, at statements that he himself had highlighted, and what he discovered is that people had tried to tell him the gospel before, and he had read the gospel before and found it so interesting, evidently, that it even highlighted the gospel message before. It had just never made sense in his life until now. And I say that to say, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He opens your eyes to the truth in a way that causes it to make sense to your mind. But when I say that, it's important to drive home that that's, it, it's never, the way that the Holy Spirit operates is never just in an intellectual capacity. It's not less than that, but it's never just that. It's not, oh, that's really interesting. What he'll do is he'll make sure that the truth makes sense to you in a way that not only stimulates the mind but captures the heart. And Jesus is explicit about this. Down in verse 21, um, Jesus is describing a scenario where he says, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. So Jesus is describing a scenario here in which you have his commands, meaning you have the Bible, and you're attempting to study it and understand it and live it out. And, and, and Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit operating through that in a way that causes the truth not only to make sense to your mind, but for it to capture your heart, such that you come to experience in a personal way the love of God and a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I could have used any number of stories to kind of highlight what this looks like, but, but one of my favorite ones that I haven't used in a really long time um, took place back in the, in the 1730s. I don't know why I'm in the 1700s today. It was just a good century. A lot of cool things happened there, I guess. So in the late 1730s, there was a small group of people uh, that got together who were seeking what, uh, you know, maybe somebody listening to this right now is seeking. They were seeking an encounter with God that was more than just intellectual, meaning they wanted to do more than just know about God. They wanted to know him personally. The only reason we know about this particular small group getting together is because there were two people who you've probably heard of in this group, John and Charles Wesley, who together went on to found the Methodist movement, which is a movement in which hundreds of thousands of people wound up giving their lives to Jesus on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it was this small group that led to the change in their lives, which led to really the launch of that movement. So anyway... One of the people in this group, his name is William Holland, he got himself, uh, he, he got his hands on, um, it was Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. And at the beginning of Martin Luther's commentary, there's a preface where he attempts to summarize the entire message of Galatians. If you've ever spent time in Galatians, it is impossible to not be encouraged by Galatians. Galatians is the gospel for exhausted people. It is literally written, every single sentence is written to remind you that Jesus has done everything necessary to settle the score and make you right with God. There's nothing to add to it. It need only be rested in, trusted, and believed in. And so Luther, in his preface, summarizes that entire message. William Holland got his hands on that, and he brought, I think this is so neat. Be, it, it, we need a resurgence of this kind of thing. Holland brought it to Charles Wesley, and they decided in their pursuit of truth, they said, all right, we're going to read this preface to each other and just kind of see what happens. And, uh, and we have an account of that, light, that night from William Holland personally um, that I think could not describe what Jesus is saying here any better. This is a direct quote. He said, Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud, and there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. 
My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. And when I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. <clears throat> That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you hear the language there. There's, there's a, a power that descends on you. It doesn't come from within you. You don't generate it. It comes from outside of you. You know, there's this experience of peace and love in your inner being that breaks your heart in all the right ways. Your burdens start falling off. This horrible need to justify yourself, to be your own God and Savior, you know, gone in an instant. And, and there's an encounter with Jesus Christ that changes the way that you live. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he reveals the truth, not only in a way that makes sense to your mind, but in a way that captures your heart. And in, in, in saying all that, I hope you find that enlightening, encouraging, wonderful. It is all those things, but that's not all that Jesus says. And it's a good thing that, that, that that's not all that Jesus says, because if this is all Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, or this is all we talked about today, then there's a chance you could walk away from this and, and think, okay, so I guess the Holy Spirit is like this assistant that sort of pops into your life and gives you a shot of, of peace, love, hope, and joy that helps you live the Christian life for another couple of days, weeks, months, whatever it is, um, which is not at all, uh, the, at least it's not the entirety. The Holy Spirit does that, clearly. Now, I'm sure he's done that in the lives of dozens of people that are listening to this right now. That's just not all he does because Jesus says that's, that's not all he is. And so the, the second thing Jesus says about the Holy Spirit is that he's a counselor who creates change in you. Uh, in, in some ways, I, I think... Uh, this, this next verse I'm about to read, verse 16, I th this is just my opinion. I think this is not only the most important verse to understand in this passage, it might be the most important verse, at least for me, in the entire Bible when it comes to really thinking about who the Holy Spirit is. Verse 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. If you look at different translations of the Bible, you will find, oddly enough, uh, that nearly every translation translates this word differently. I'll give you the top four that you've probably heard before. It'll translate this word, uh, counselor, like my version, comforter, helper, or advocate, and there's a whole list of other ones, but those are the four main ones. And whenever you're dealing with a Greek word that every English translation happens to translate differently, that's a good sign, that's actually proof that you're dealing with a Greek word uh, that has a meaning that's so rich and all-encompassing that there is no single English word that can really grasp all that the word means. The Greek word Jesus uses here that my version translates counselor is parakletos, which comes from two Greek words, para and kaleo. Uh, if you want to understand who the Holy Spirit is and how he operates, uh, in the lives of those who give their life to Jesus, you have to understand both of these Greek words. So, so I'll just walk through both of them. First off, para. Um, para means someone who walks right beside you. And that actually does show up in, in the English language another times, uh, a number of times. Paramedic is one example of that. Paralegal, paratrooper, all that kind of stuff. Uh, para, a para, if you want to think about it that way, is someone who walks, who, who walks right alongside you, meaning they do not walk ahead of you, blazing a trail, waiting for you to catch up. They do not walk behind you, waiting for you to take you know, the first step, and they'll kind of be your support when you need it. They walk right alongside you. They are always with you, and this is important. They will never leave you. That's what para means. Kaleo, on the other hand, which is actually 
a band that's kind of famous named Kaleo, is a Greek word that means to declare uh, or actually to argue. And this word carries with it the, the, the connotation of, you know, confronting someone in a, in, a, in a really a powerful way. So when you look at these two words, it's, it's interesting. Para comes with a certain softness to it, whereas kaleo has a real sharpness to it. Uh, para is a very comforting idea, whereas kaleo is a very challenging idea. And, and when you think through that, you know, you got to give the translators of the Bible a little bit of grace here. It makes sense that every version has to translate this differently because there really is no one English word that gets those ideas put together because those ideas shouldn't go together. I mean, I'll just ask you, how can something be soft and sharp at the same time? How can something provide comfort yet refuse to allow you to get comfortable at the same time? Those two things just don't go together, but the point is they do in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I've heard it said, and I think it's appropriate to say, that the Holy Spirit can really be considered the ultimate friend, um, really the friend that every single one of us needs. Because I'll just make this personal for you. What, what you need, on the one hand, is you need a, a, a para, meaning you need a friend who will go with you wherever you go. And no matter how many stupid choices you make, no matter how many times you refuse to learn from your past mistakes, uh, no matter how stubborn or how prideful or how you know, bitter or envious or self-pity or whatever it is that, that you plan to be, you need someone who will refuse to throw up their hands and say, you know what, if you don't want to listen, I'm out. And I'll just point it out to you, nobody has a human friend like that, but that's the kind of friend that every single one of us needs. And I, I did this at the 9 a.m. I have no idea whether this landed with anybody, but please forgive me if I can use a super nerdy reference for just a minute here. I really like the Marvel movies. There's, one of the Marvel movies is uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, uh, which you will never be able to watch again without thinking about this message, so that's interesting. Uh, in, the, in the movie, you have Captain America... And he's fighting against the Witter Soldier, who is actually his childhood friend, a guy named James Buchanan Barnes. And the problem is, uh, he has completely forgotten who he is. He has no real grasp of his own identity. He's kind of been brainwashed. And he's, you know, he's dealing with all this like, pain and baggage and trauma of, of his past mistakes and the decisions that he's made and all that kind of stuff. And so there's this showdown between him and Captain America. And all Captain America is really trying to do is, is get him to understand who he is. And so that's what he tells him. He says, your name is James Buchanan Barnes. And so this fight ensues, and, uh, and, and, and he drops his shield. And the Winter Soldier kind of pins him, and he says, you're my mission. And Captain America looks at him, and he says, then finish it, because I'm with you to the end of the line. And I say all of that to say the human heart needs a friend to look it directly in the eye and say, I don't care what you do from here on out. I'm with you to the end of the line. You don't have that in any human being. You will be disappointed if you look for that in any human being. Even if they're a good friend, one of you is going to die one day. The Holy Spirit is that friend that can actually say, I'm with you to the end of the line. We, every one of us needs that. However, this is the other side of this. What we also need right alongside that is a friend who loves us too much to simply enable us. We need something more than somebody that just walks with us into the tire fires that we make of our lives so often. We need somebody who is so dedicated to our health and wellness and development and all of that that they refuse to stand idly by and watch us ruin ourselves so they love us enough to kaleo us, to challenge us, to argue with us, to confront us. 
And what the Bible says is that there's two things that the Holy Spirit will faithfully confront you with your entire life from the moment that you give your life to Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit. The first one is not going to surprise you, but the second one just might. All right, first off, Scripture's clear that the Holy Spirit will confront you by reminding you that you're a sinner. Obviously, if the presence of God is taking up residence in your life, he's perfect, he's holy, you're not, so he's going to bring those areas out in your life. So it's the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to, to, to get you to face the areas of your life that you would never normally face on your own. Nobody moves through life thinking, I want to you know, come, come to a painful realization of how prideful and entitled and self-pitying and bitter and unforgiving I am. But the Holy Spirit says, I'm not going to leave you this way. I'm not going to let your blind spots remain blind spots, so we're going to face this. That probably doesn't surprise anybody listening to this, but what might is that the Bible is also clear that the human heart, not only does the human heart not want to face how sinful we are, the human heart also doesn't want to face how loved and accepted we are in Christ. That might actually be harder for the human heart, for, for some of us listening to this, which is why in Romans 8.16, we read, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we really are God's children. You hear that courtroom language there? The, the, the scene that Scripture's painting for you and I is, is, is that the Holy Spirit is, is this you know, star witness, and his ministry is to continually provide evidence that you really are a child of God, and you notice the Holy Spirit's not facing God the Father when he does that. It's not like the Holy Spirit needs to continually convince God the Father, hey, that, that's your child. You know, you got to love him like a father. The Father already knows that. The Holy Spirit's facing you. The Holy Spirit is facing your spirit, your heart, your soul, perpetually, continually throughout your life, testifying that you really are a child of God. There's exactly one reason that the Holy Spirit needs to do that. It's because your heart doesn't want to believe it. The human heart is so stubborn, it is so foolish, that it refuses to rest in the finished work of Jesus. That's why saved people need the gospel as much as people who've never given their life to Jesus. We need to hear it over and over again because we have this natural pro propensity. Charles Spurgeon said religion is deep-seated in the heart of man. We refuse to believe that we can't earn this. We don't want to give that God that much control that Jesus really did it all, so we try to earn it, which is why we're so exhausted and so miserable. And, and so I say that to say that I understand at least why my version of the Bible translates the Holy Spirit counselor, because what the Holy Spirit does essentially from the moment he enters your life is he begins a lifelong intervention with you. The Holy Spirit enters into your life and he sees you exhausted, killing yourself because you're trying to prove yourself. And he sees you manipulating the people around you to try to squeeze every ounce of approval or control you can from them. He sees you medicating yourself and distracting yourself with all these cheap substitutes for real love and joy and peace and hope. And he sees you building your life on things that are eventually going to lead to your ruin. And he says, I will not stand for this. I love you too much to let it fly. And so the Holy Spirit, on the one hand, will tell you things that you don't want to hear, namely that you're a sinner and your sin goes so much further than you thought it did the day you gave your life to Jesus. And you cannot solve it through your own efforts. And if you listen to the Holy Spirit saying that over the course of your life, it will, it will turn you into a person of profound humility. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit also tells your heart things that you desperately need to hear, which is that you are infinitely loved and you are infinitely accepted by God through Christ and that his love for you does not depend on what's in your heart. It depends on what's in his heart for you.
And if you listen to that, amen, amen, that's good news. Amen, amen. And so my point in saying all this is that if you listen to the Holy Spirit throughout the course of your life, it, it, it will turn you into, into a bit of a paradox, which the Holy Spirit himself is. It'll turn you into a person both of deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. That's why I've heard it said the gospel will humble you into the dirt, but it'll lift you up to the stars at the same time. And in this process that the Bible refers to as sanctification, it'll completely transform who you would have been apart from the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Everything I've said up to this point leads to a, a, a single question that I want to end our time with um, that, that for me, I mean, if I, if I was listening to this right now, this, this is the million-dollar question for me. The question is, okay, all of that sounds great. This is amazing, who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does. The question is, how can I experience the person and the power of the Holy Spirit of God in my life? Even in asking that question, I touched on this earlier, you got to be really careful because we have to avoid the trap of thinking that there's techniques that we can employ so as to manipulate the Holy Spirit of God into our lives. It doesn't work like that. However, I just, I've been thinking about this all week. This is so curious to me, the more that you think about it. Do you know that the, that the New Testament, I, I believe it's 1 Thessalonians 5, do you know that, that the New Testament commands you to not quench the Holy Spirit of God? Now, what that means at the very least is you can quench the Holy Spirit of God. What that means is that there are things that you can do that will both damage your relationship with the Holy Spirit and hinder His power and presence in your life. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I want to be crystal clear there. You can't unearn something that you didn't earn in the first place. But of course you can damage the relationship. Every relationship works like that. Bible also says not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He's never going to give up on you, but you can grieve him. You can quench him. And so therefore, the opposite of that is also true. That must mean that there are things that you can do to facilitate health in your relationship with God, which lead to you experiencing in, in greater ways his power and his presence in your life. And according to Jesus, there are two things that you can do and you must do if you want to experience the power and the presence of God in your life. And next week, I'll tell you, I'm just kidding. I would never do that to you. I did the same thing to the nine. I couldn't resist. That would be the just egregious sin. That's not what we're going to do. But I want to tell you these two things. And, and, I, and I'll offer you this on the front end. These sound really simple, but they're not. And it's not that they're complicated. It's just that they're not simple. They're deep. They're profound. Here's the two things, according to Jesus' words here, that you have to do if you want to experience everything that we've talked about today. Number one, you have to believe in the first counselor. Sounds, it sounds simple, but follow me here. Jesus said, the, the promise of this passage is that he would send another counselor. It raises the question, who's the first one? And there's only one other place in the New Testament that this same Greek word is used. And when it's used, not surprisingly, it refers to Jesus Christ. Same author, John, wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that when we sin... We have a same exact word, parakletos, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so what that means uh, is that if you want to get the ministry of the, 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 the second counselor, you have to first and foremost believe in Jesus, the first counselor. This is another reason why I really like that my version of the Bible translated this word counselor. In order for time spent with a counselor, and I realize in saying this, there's probably a lot of people who, who are listening to this, you've either been to a counselor or actually know we have some 
uh, professional counselors in our congregation. So maybe this will especially hit home for you. But in order for time spent with a counselor to really be transformative, uh, there's something that you need to admit on, on the front end before you even walk into that counselor's office. You know, because you can be coerced into going to a counselor. It can be a court-ordered thing. Your spouse can say, I'm going to leave you if you don't start going to a counselor. There's a lot of wrong reasons, uh, or, or at least less than great reasons, to go to a counselor. In order for a, a time with a counselor to actually mean something and do something in your life, you need to admit before ever walking into that counselor's office that you are not competent to run your own life, which is a profoundly humbling thing to come to terms with. And, and pardon me, but I think I can speak with a, just a little bit of authority and conviction here because, as I've said before, I actually um, did meet with a counselor uh, back in 2012, the summer of 2012. I met with a counselor uh, every single week of that summer. It was a pivotal time in my life. Uh, it was when I was debating whether or not I was going to leave the fire department to come on and, and, and enter into ministry full time. And uh, without getting too deep into the details, that three-month period of my life was, um, it was life-shaping. You know, it brought a depth to my relationship with God that I really didn't even believe was possible before that. And I had friends and people close to me say, you know, who saw me go into the counselor's office that summer and, and then walk out. Um, he said, hey, I, whoever you are, we don't even recognize who you are. It was, it was incredibly, it was, it was just life-changing for me, which is a story for another time. I'm just saying all that to say, the reason that had any effect in my life at all is because prior to walking into that counselor's office, I came to terms with the reality I wasn't competent to run my own life. God was faithful to bring me to that point himself because I don't think I would have ever gotten there if God didn't bring me there. But I knew I was in a hole and I wasn't climbing out of it on my own. And, I, you know, to be cliche here, I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And, and, and I say all that to say that on a cosmic scale, that's what the Bible is saying. That's how you have to approach Jesus as the first counselor if you want to experience the ministry of the second counselor. It, believing in Jesus as the first counselor is a whole lot more than just coming to Jesus as an assistant or coming to Jesus as an advisor. It's about coming before the Son of God with a posture of heart that says, Jesus, I'm a mess and all I know to do is dump my life on the coffee table in front of you and let you make me whole and let you heal me because I can't do this on my own. That's what it means to come to Jesus as the first counselor and to believe in him as the first counselor. And, and when you hear it explained that way, you realize this is not just for people who are outside of Christianity. There's a whole lot of Christians who are already Christians that need to get reacquainted with how much they need Jesus. Amen. So this is a one-time thing that is exactly as much a lifetime thing. That's the first thing that Jesus says we have to do here. But secondly, and, and this will be the last thing that I, that I touch on, and it's actually the first thing that Jesus says here. If you want to experience everything that we've talked about today, you have to obey him. The, the first thing Jesus says here in this passage that is exclusively about the Holy Spirit of God, the first thing Jesus said, we read it together, he says, if you love me, keep my commands, and then my Father will send another counselor. He says the same thing with slightly different words in verses 21 and 23. Three times in the same passage, Jesus connected the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to your obedience. Now, does that mean that Jesus is teaching that if you just live a good life, God's going to transform you through the power and presence of his spirit? Of course not. That's the opposite of the gospel. That's the opposite of everything else that Jesus said and all of his followers said throughout the New Testament. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. 
It means that God's revelation of who he is in your life is directly connected to your surrender and obedience to him in your life. If you listen to this, if I just ended here, if you listen to this message up to this point, I'm confident if you thought about this in the days and weeks ahead, you would eventually arrive at a question that I'm going to ask for you now. To me, this whole, question, this whole teaching begs the question, okay, if all of this is true and every believer is filled with the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, the moment they give their life to Jesus, why don't Christians experience more of this in their life? And you know, maybe, maybe you're asking that personally. Maybe you've given your life to Jesus and you find yourself, here you are, you know, listening to a, a message about the Holy Spirit, and you're asking, man, all that sounds great, all that's biblical. Why don't I see more of that in my life? I'll be perfectly transparent with you. I've been asking myself that question since I've been putting this teaching together. So let me go ahead and plague you with it. So now we're in this thing together. And I, I want to give you an answer according to what Jesus says here and what Scripture says elsewhere. When you look at all that the Bible has to say about the Spirit of God, what is, what is so clear, just do a word study of the Greek word pneuma, that's spirit, and see how many times the Holy Spirit is referenced in the New Testament epistles. It is so clear that none of the first followers of Jesus thought it was even worth talking about Christianity without talking about the Holy Spirit because they knew you can't live this life without the Holy Spirit. This Spirit is a person who is the fuel that you run on to live a life in the footsteps of Jesus. It's impossible apart from that. Now, if that's true, can I ask you to consider something? Because this logically follows. And here's where this is going to get real uncomfortable. Could it be that the reason we so rarely experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives is because we so rarely even attempt to live a life that requires his power and his presence in our lives? This is exactly how the last service felt when I asked that question. That is a come-to-Jesus question. It doesn't take the Holy Spirit to live what a lot of people try to reduce Christianity to. It doesn't take the power of the Spirit of God to read your Bible a couple mornings a week, say your prayers before you go to bed, and show up to a building for one hour a weekend. Pharisees did that. They got a better track record than anybody that's going to listen to this message. That's not it. But I, I, want you to, I want you to hear this the way the first followers of Jesus, the disciples in the upper room heard this. When they hear Jesus saying, obey me, follow me, give your life to me, emulate me. And then a few hours later, they saw Jesus die on the cross for the sins of the world, praying only for the forgiveness of his murderers. I'm going to go out here on a limb and say, when they heard Jesus say, obey me, they had a more full-orbed understanding of what that meant than maybe we do. So you start talking about actually denying yourself, actually taking up your cross, actually loving your enemies, actually living a life that is molded and informed and shaped and transformed by the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ on the cross, that's a life that requires the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And just, just as you can't really find out whether or not a vessel is seaworthy until you get it out in the open ocean, so you and I should not expect to experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God if we're unwilling to live a life that Jesus prescribes for those who claim to love him. 
And to me, the greatest example of this idea, and I'm almost done. I know that this is a longer teaching than maybe I've given before, but I've never talked about the Holy Spirit before. I don't know when I'm going to do this again. I just want to say what I got to say. So give me just a few more minutes here. To me, the greatest example of what we're talking about here in the Bible is Abraham. Actually, the first message I ever preached for this church was about Abraham. It was a men's retreat back in 2011. When God... God appeared to Abraham. Abraham had, he was living his best life. You know, he's, he's old, he's rich, he's living in this place called Haran, which the way that I understand it is basically the ancient Near Eastern version of Florida. There's nothing left for him to do but run out the clock in peace. He made it. And God showed up and he interrupted his life and he messed up his plans for his life the way that he so often likes to do in all of our lives. And you can read about this in Genesis 12 this week. He shows it to Abraham and he simply says, Go dot, 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 and I will bless you. He didn't say, Abraham, I am going to unload my blessings on you right here in this tent, and then after you see how good I am, start moving. He just said, start moving. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul, reflecting back on the life of Abraham, I love the way the ESV translates it. He said, I think it's, it might be Romans 4 verse 20. He said that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. In other words, he didn't grow strong in his faith and then decide to start giving glory to God. He just started moving. And Hebrews says, Abraham, this is so amazing to me. Hebrews says Abraham didn't even know where he was going. Can you imagine God showing up to you at 75 years of age and say, start walking. And you say, where? And he says, we're not there yet. Just start moving. I'll get to the details. That's what Abraham did. He put one foot in front of the other. He took the next step, and his faith grew strong, and his God became real to him as he did, not a moment before. And that's what Jesus is calling anybody who desires to follow him to do here. So I'm going to call the worship team up, and we'll close with this. Truth is, this idea is, is going to mean something different, and it's going to look different in the lives of everyone who listens to this message. You know, for some people listening to this right now, maybe you find yourself right where William Holland and the Wesley brothers were from the story that I told earlier. You remember, they decided to get together and to begin seeking and to begin studying and to begin searching and to begin praying even before they had had a life-changing encounter with God. And God, as history went on to show, met them in that process. And for some people listening to this right now, that's exactly where you are. This has not become real to you yet. You know it hasn't clicked yet. You don't really believe any of it. You haven't had the experiences that we've talked about in any way, shape, or form this morning. And so the application for you is clear. Keep showing up and keep leaning in, and keep asking questions, and keep studying, and keep praying until it does become real. God said, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. But for most of the people listening to this teaching, I realize that's not where you are. For most of the people that are listening to this, you, you believe all of this already. And maybe you've even had an encounter or a few encounters with the Holy Spirit of God that's something, that sounds something like what we've talked about today, but maybe you're asking yourself in light of all this, why haven't I experienced this more? 
Why haven't I experienced this in a long time? And if that's you, I want to end speaking to you directly. And here's what I want to offer you. And that's all this is. This is something I'm trying to offer you. I'm willing to bet that there's something in your life that God's calling you to do. And I think you know what it is. I think you've known for some time, but you haven't done it yet. Why? Because, let's be honest, it's a terrifying thing to trust God enough to do what he says sometimes, is it not? Ask Abraham. Or, or maybe you're coming from exactly the opposite place, where there's something that you've been doing that you know God desires you to stop doing. But here you are, you're holding on to something that God has said it's time to let go of. You haven't let go of it yet. Why? Because again, it's a terrifying thing to trust God enough to let go of something, to walk away from something, trusting him that he will be more satisfying than that which he is calling you to let go of. But wherever you find yourself, I believe the application of this teaching is the same for all of us. What Jesus is saying to us through these words some 2,000 years later, what the Son of God is calling you and I to do is the same thing that anyone who has ever had a life-changing encounter with God has had to do, which is trust God enough to obey Him and watch Him make Himself real. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, I, I simply would ask that you would make yourself real through the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit in the lives of every single person who's listening to this right now. I believe that there is something that you're calling every single one of us to. There's something that you've laid on every single one of our hearts. I just want to ask whatever that means, whatever that looks like, for someone on the other end of this message, that you'd give them the strength, you'd give them the courage to take that step, to step out in faith, and that as they do, you would meet them and you would become real to them in ways that they never believed were possible. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you.